the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, The Spanish Ambassador's Suitcase, presented by Andrew Bryson and Matthew Paris. This talk was recorded on the 3rd of December 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure and an honour to come and, and speak here. We actually owe both these books to Q. As Andrew will explain in a moment, uh, let me explain about Andrew. When you see on the cover of a book uh, uh, an author's name in big letters and then underneath another author's la- la- name in uh, small letters, you can always assume that the one in small letters is the one who did the work <laughs> and the one in big letters is the one who they think may attract a potential reader's eye. So I am really just the, I'm the kind of gorgeous pouting assistant. I'm the, I'm the eye candy. I'm the sprig of holly on the cake. The substance is over there. And the substance, uh, Andrew Bryson, who's now a producer on the Today programme, when he was quite a lot younger uh, in the BBC, uh, read a couple of newspaper articles that I'd written about valedictory dispatches. The valedictory dispatch in the diplomatic service is the dispatch that an ambassador writes when I'm going to say he, not only because it's simpler or shorter than he or she, but also because until very recently there were almost no female ambassadors in the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office was one of the last bastions of hopeless arguments against giving proper jobs to women. They, they found all kinds of reasons. A woman couldn't go to Saudi Arabia. No one would take her seriously. What if her husband has a job? What's she going to do? The Foreign Office held out right until the 70s or the early 80s. So almost all the ambassadors are men, and they used to write uh, a dispatch uh, at the end of their time in a post abroad. Um, and it would be called the valedictory dispatch because it would be felt that on leaving uh, a post, you could be a little bit frank about the place where you'd been, the people that you'd met, the country you'd been representing us to. But the valedictory of valedictories was the dispatch written by an ambassador not only leaving the post, but leaving their last post, the last post before they retired. Now then, They could be rude about the Foreign Office. They could be rude about everybody. They could be rude about British ministers, about politics. And they were typically as rude about their own diplomatic service as they were about the place where they had been posted. But also quite lyrical. uh, And and you'll find in many of these dispatches quite a lot of lyricism. I had written about these valedictories in The Times and in The Spectator, assuming that they would all be classified. Well, I knew they were classified because I'd read them. I had two years in the Foreign Office on leaving university. I assumed that uh, these things would all be uh, perhaps secret, more likely confidential, and uh, occasionally restricted. Uh, But uh, um, Andrew, who'd read the uh, articles, said, well, look, these days we got freedom of information. It's also the case that the 30 years rule applies to some of the dispatches you're talking about. I could go along to Q and see if I could find them. We'd need to know a little bit about what we were looking for. And some of them might be declassified, some might be declassifiable. So I said, we'll give it a go. And Andrew's idea was to turn this into a radio program. And we did. And it was a really good radio program and much better than we had expected. But uh, at, at the same time, we realized we got such a wealth of material 
we could make a book out of it, and we did, and it went sold much better than we'd expected. We sold twenty or thirty or forty thousand of them, I think. <clears throat> and then ambassadors read our uh, book and thought, ah, well, there's a few more dispatches here that they don't seem to have found. And we got lots of letters from people saying, surely you saw Reggie's dispatch, you know, from <laughs> wherever. Or there was a terrifically humorous one from Afghanistan, or was it Algeria, or Azerbaijan, somewhere beginning with A. See if you can find it. And uh, uh, Andrew did find a lot of these. And so the second book, The Spanish Ambassador's Suitcase and Other Stories, is some valedictories, but also some first impressions, dispatches, and some uh, some quite serious dispatches, a, a couple of which I would like to read. But I thought I'd hand over now to Andrew. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll talk a little bit about the process, um, perhaps a little, a little bit more than we than we usually would. But we do we have done quite a few of these talks, often to book festivals and so on. But I'm interested in, in this audience in particular. Who here uses the archives for research? Probably quite a, a number of you. Yeah. And um, what about freedom of information requests as well for more modern material? A smaller number of you? Okay. Um, on setting out to, to make the book, we soon realized that the National Archives would be a key asset, and most of the material in the book is from the National Archives. Of course, after 30 years, uh, all diplomatic correspondence, with very few exceptions, gets declassified, and it's all there in the archives to be trawled through. Um, of course, the more recent material, newer than 30 years, had a particular currency, uh, and that was the stuff that we were really keen to get. So the research really fell into two different camps, and there were complete opposites. On the one hand, I would be writing off freedom of information requests. Uh, I sent about, I think I requested about 100 documents, so about 10 freedom of information requests, 10 documents on each for each of the books. And I was ever sort of conscious that at some point the Foreign Office were going to put up the red card, which is the uh, vexatious and repeated uh, requests exemption in the Freedom of Information Act, um, 1995. They, uh, they didn't. They, um, they dealt with the requests uh, with great professionalism and uh, actually released to us a lot more than I thought they would. Um, we, were, we were actually told by a very senior um, diplomat that one of our early scores, one of our early direct hits, which was the valedictory dispatch of Lord Moran, um, British, um, British High Commissioner to uh, Canada in 1984, um, which w was in the Sunday Times when we first, um, someone uh, remembers, remembers that one, um, when, we, when we first did the radio series, um, in which he said that the Canadians were very moderate people um, anyone with any talent whatsoever tends to go elsewhere. Uh, and, and anyone who was even moderately good at theatre, ballet, skiing, whatever, tended to be given the Order of Canada at once. Um, and that was let through under freedom of information. Um, the Act has exemptions which would prevent the disclosure, which will allow them to withhold documents, uh, under a series of exemptions, which I thought would be pretty catch-all. Things like that uh, would be harmful to international relations, would be harmful to security. Uh, but that one got through, and we were subsequently told that that was uh, a clerical error. <laughs> um, so it became increasingly hard once the Foreign Office knew what we were up to. Um, but they still released the material. It caused quite a fuss in Canada, that one, uh, <laughs> with a, a number of uh, columns. Actually, some Canadians supporting 
Lord Moran, which suggests to me that Can Canadians have a more thoughtful approach to these things than Lord Moran suggested. <laughs> and uh, so freedom of information requests, very targeted. You had to know what you were looking for. Uh, if you say, uh, you know, a, there's a dispatch about a camel written in Afghanistan or was it Algeria in the 60s or maybe the 70s, uh, please, they'll say no. But if you say, we would like a dispatch written by the third secretary at the Moscow embassy on the 21st of October 1997 about a horse that John Major was given as a gift by the president of Turkmenistan, they have to give it to you. Unless it falls under one of the, one of the exemptions, there is a a bias for disclosure. Um, and Matthew's contacts came particularly useful in this area. Matthew's been characteristically modest as ever in terms of getting that really high-grade material. You had to have good leads. Well, um, John, John Major remembered that uh, <laughs> dispatch. Uh, and it, it's, a real, it's a real corker. The poor third secretary ended up having to sweep out the horse manure from the railroad <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then the National Archives, which was a completely different experience. In the National Archives, it's not a limited amount of information and only a few specific documents. There are hundreds of thousands of documents, uh, and for every dispatch, there would be the, the, the clerk that received it. There would be their comments on top of it. There would then be the department head, part, department's head comments. That dispatch might then be printed formally for circulation, so there would be another document. So if every dispatch, there would be five or six or seven pages in the folio, and there were hundreds of, hundreds of dispatches. So it was, it was actually simply a numbers game in the end of going through every dispatch in the archives that was categorized for the first book as a valedictory dispatch. And, and reading them. And I must say, I often felt like a bit of a fraud when I was up there in the reading rooms and there would be sort of serious researchers going through World War II logbooks and family archives, um, you know, writing their history PhDs. Where, and I would be there with a stack of documents this high, flicking through them, looking for rude jokes, essentially, and <laughs> casting aside the, uh, the serious ones. And about one in six were interesting, and many of the others were too serious. Foreign policy analysis doesn't, uh, it tends to date quite quickly. Um, and then what we kept was sort of the distilled best bits uh, from the dispatches. And there were many, there were many good ones. And that was a great, it's a great pleasure finding the best ones, uh, particularly the ones that people thought were an urban myth. Um, we managed to trace one or two of those. I don't think we dare read that one out, do we? This is such a polite audience, but uh, we'll, we'll decide a little later. We'll decide, we'll decide a little later. Um, oh, anyway, on to, on to some of the material itself. Um, from the Spanish ambassador's suitcase, we were looking for, not valedictories by this time, we were looking for what was called funnies in the Foreign Office. Dispatches written principally to entertain uh, other diplomats and, and their colleagues around the world. So here is one of these funnies, which we did discover in the archives thought, long thought, apocryphal, and one of the most famous uh, funnies of them all, which is the national salute to the Sultan of Muscat and Amman. Now, what we've got here, essentially, is the diplomat in the field turning, uh, thumbing his nose back to Whitehall and saying, you guys there don't understand what it's like here in the field. And this is a common sort of trope that goes all the way through foreign office literature. So I'll read this one, and then I'll read a more modern one, and you'll see that it's still very much alive and well. The background to this, a Navy cruiser, a Royal Navy cruiser, arrived in a foreign port, we don't know where, somewhere in, in the world, 
And uh, when the local potentate went on board, the band played the wrong national anthem, which obviously caused the Royal Navy and the Foreign Office acute embarrassment. So they sent instructions out to every embassy. And four weeks later, John Phillips, Consul General in Muscat, uh, his dispatch arrived in Whitehall and he instantly went down in Foreign Office folklore. My Lord, I have the honour to refer to your Lordship's dispatch number 8 of the 29th July, in which you requested me to ascertain, on behalf of the Lords Commissioners of the Admiralty, whether the B-flat clarinet music enclosed with your dispatch was a correct and up-to-date rendering of the national salute to the Sultan of Muscat and Amman. I have encountered certain difficulties in fulfilling this request. The Sultanate has not, in, not since 1937 possessed a band. None of the Sultan's sub subjects, so far as I am aware, can read music, which the majority of them regard as sinful. The manager of the British Bank of the Middle East, who can, does not possess a clarinet. <laughs> Even if he did, the dignitary who, in the absence of the Sultan, is the recipient of ceremonial honours and who might be presumed to recognise the tune, is somewhat deaf. <laughs> Fortunately, I have been able to obtain, and now enclose, a gramophone record which has on one side a rendering by a British military band of the salutation and march to His Highness the Sultan of Muscat and Amman. The first part of this tune, which was composed by the bandmaster of a cruiser in about 1932, bears close resemblance to a pianoforte rendering by the bank manager of the clarinet music <laughs> enclosed with your Lordship's dispatch. The only further testimony I can obtain of the correctness of this music is that it reminds a resident of long-standing of a tune once played by the long-defunct band of the now-disbanded Muscat Infantry and known at the time to non-commissioned members of His Majesty's forces as, I quote the vernacular, God strike the Sultan blind. <laughs> I am informed by the Acting Minister of Foreign Affairs that there are now no occasions on which the salutation is officially played. The last occasion on which it is known to have been played at all was on a gramophone at an evening reception given by the military secretary in honour of the Sultan, who inadvertently sat on the record afterwards and broke it. <laughs> and he included in the diplomatic bag, uh, diplomatic bag the broken gramophone record <laughs> and sent it back to London. Now, we interviewed for one of our radio programmes Oliver Miles, best known as a, uh, an ambassador to Libya, um, who knew John um, Phillips or knew his registry clerk, that's right, and said that Phillips had the registry clerk seal, in, in Oliver Miles' words, seal and unseal that damn bag five or six times in order to change a comma, or just, just get this right, because he knew, he knew what he was doing, he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, it's, it is worth interjecting that there has been a tradition in the Foreign Office of what you would call fine writing, and by fine writing, one absolutely does not mean uh, florid or literary stuff but examples of good, clear English prose, often laced with the understated uh, humour and conveying important information in the most efficient possible way. Senior diplomats have always prized those skills very highly. Whether this is still continuing in an age of email, I don't know. But the dispatch was, in a way, a sort of showpiece in which a senior diplomat would showcase their, their ability. And it was read to be uh, chuckled over and uh, wise heads to be nodded over back back at the office in Whitehall. Mm. 
And the humor served a purpose with many of these, it's important to remember. The diplomats used them. They often did the sort of funny stuff at the beginning and then you know, use that to frame a serious dispatch, knowing that the funny stuff would get it noticed. Um, so this next one, which we obtained through Freedom of Information, the John Phillips dispatch was from 1960. This one's from 2002. This was by Paul Brummel. Uh, who's now, or last, when I last checked in, he was our High Commissioner in Barbados. He was at this time Ambassador in Ashgabat, which I think is Turkmenistan. Kyrgyzstan. Sure. Anyone? <laughs> now, we tried to get his dispatches because Jack Straw had told us, foreign, former Foreign Secretary, that they were so funny that Jack Straw, as Foreign Secretary, insisted that every one of Paul Brummel's dispatches, and he served in Kyrgyzstan, and Turkmenistan, every single one of those dispatches would be put into the Foreign um, Secretary's ministerial red box. All, all dispatches are addressed as a matter of formality to the Foreign Secretary, but the Foreign Secretary doesn't always see them. And so the ambassador's ploy worked. He was funny in order to be noticed. Usually the Foreign Secretary would never read a single dispatch from, um, from Turkmenistan, but here we go. 2002. Subject, a condom conundrum. New policy on condoms is welcome, but local implementation is not straightforward. I should add briefly here, in British embassies over, overseas, the staff is split between uh, home staff, so Brits sent abroad, um, and locally engaged staff. So obviously if you, you know, if you get robbed in Barcelona and go to the, the consul, most of the people that help you will be Spanish rather than, um, rather than Brits. FCO Circular 104 of 3rd April. Some here wondered whether it was sent two days late sets out a new policy regarding the distribution of condoms to staff. This is welcome evidence of the administration's willingness to respond to the public health concerns of all our staff, locally engaged and UK-based. But implementation is not entirely straightforward. Consider the following hypothetical members of an embassy. Young Miss T of a deeply conservative family, has a new boyfriend. She has recently discovered that he once dabbled with injected drugs and is worried that he may be HIV positive. She is, in short, exactly the kind of member of staff the new policy is designed to help. But she's terrified that her work colleagues might discover that she's actually having sex. She would never place an order for condoms from her employer and is nervous of taking condoms from a help-yourself basket in the ladies' toilet as she believes her two female colleagues would quickly work out her secret. So I usually warn people I'm about to lower the tone before I start. <laughs> anyway. Pious Mrs. V believes that all forms of contraception are a sin. She is angered by the new FCA policy, which she believes to be evidence of declining British moral, va moral values. When a basket of condoms appears in the ladies' toilet, she flushes them all down the loo. <laughs> the resulting blockage of the plumbing is resolved at a cost of £50 to the local budget. Corrupt Mr. W is newly married. He and his wife are desperate to start a family. He has, in short, no need for condoms. But he's not one to look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> he takes as many free condoms as he thinks he can get away with, which he then sells on to his brother, who runs a market store. Pug-faced Mr. X has many attributes. Unfortunately, none of them have brought him any success with women. Not his stamp collection, his heavy metal, his gurning. The free condom policy causes him alarm. He has no need for them, but he certainly does not want his colleagues to know that. His solution is to request mannishly large numbers. 
They then lie in the back of his wardrobe where, at Her Majesty's expense, they sit moving inexorably towards their three-year expiry date. Right, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to not lower the tone, but sort of um, darken the tone slightly with, uh, if I can find it, yes, here it is. This, as it happens, written by... Bertie Mitford, Second Secretary at HM Legation, Tokyo, March 1868. Uh, this happens to be the first account in English by an eyewitness uh, of the Japanese harikiri uh, ceremony. No foreigner had ever witnessed the ceremony before. And what had happened was that uh, an officer in the Japanese army had uh, killed I don't think it was a diplomat, but had killed a foreigner in, uh, in Japan. And the government, the Japanese government, was so ashamed of this mistake, the officer shouldn't have done this, that the entire diplomatic corps, meaning ambassadors from all over the world, were invited to come themselves and witness that officer committing harikiri. I was last night officially sent to witness the execution by harikiri, of uh, Taki Zenzaburo, the officer of the Prince of Bizen. He it was who gave the order to fire upon the foreign settlement at Hyogo on the 4th of last month. As the harakiri is one of the customs of this country, which has excited the greatest curiosity in Europe, although owing to the fact that it has never hitherto been witnessed by foreigners, it seemed to me little better than a matter of fable. I will tell you what occurred. After an interval, the witness was sent from, a witness was sent from each of the foreign legations. We were seven foreigners in all. After an interval of a few moments of anxious suspense, Taki Zenzaburo, a stalwart man, 32 years of age, with a noble air, walked into the hall, attired in his dress of ceremony with the peculiar hempen cloth wings which are worn on great occasions. He was accompanied by a kaishaku and three officers who wore the jimbori, or water circuit, war surcoat, of gold tissue facings. The word kaishaku, it should be observed, is one to which our word executioner is not the equivalent term. The office is that of a gentleman. In many cases, it's performed by a kinsman or friend of the condemned, and the relation between them is rather that of principal and second than a victim and executioner. With the kaishaku on his left hand, Taki Zenzaburo advanced slowly towards the Japanese witnesses and the two bowed before them. Then, drawing near to the foreigners, they saluted in the same way, perhaps even with more deference. In each case, the salutation was ceremoniously returned. Slowly and with great dignity, the condemned man mounted onto the raised floor, prostrated himself before the high altar twice, and seated himself on the felt carpet with his back to the high altar, the kaishaku crouching on his left-hand side. One of the attendant officers came forward, bearing a stand of the kind used in temples for offerings, on which, wrapped in paper, lay the wakizashi, the short sword or dirk of the Japanese, nine inches and a half in length, with a point and an edge as sharp as a razor's. This he handed, prostrating himself to the condemned man, who received it reverently, raised it to his head with both hands, 
and placed it in front of himself. After another profound obeisance, Taki Zenzaburo, in a voice which betrayed just so much emotion and hesitation as might be expected from a man who is making a painful confession, but with no sign of either in his face or manner, spoke as follows. I, and I alone, unwarrantably, gave the order to fire on the foreigners at Kobe, and again as they tried to escape on the 11th of last month, 14th of February, 1868. For this crime, I disembowel myself, and I beg you who are present to do me the honour of witnessing the act. Bowing once more, the speaker allowed his upper garments to slip down to his girdle and remained naked to the waist. Carefully, according to custom, he tucked his sleeves under his knees to prevent himself from falling backwards, for a noble Japanese gentleman should die falling forwards. Deliberately, with a steady hand, he took the dirk that lay before him. He looked at it wistfully, almost affectionately. For a moment he seemed to collect his thoughts for the last time, and then, stabbing himself deeply below the waist on the left-hand side, he drew the dirk slowly across to the right-hand side, turned it in the wound, gave a slight cut upwards. During this sickeningly painful operation, never moved a muscle of his face. When he drew out the dirk, he leaned forward and stretched out his neck, an expression of pain for the first time crossing his face, but he uttered no sound. At that moment, the kaishaku, who still crouching by his side had been keenly watching his every movement, sprang to his feet, poised his sword for a second in the air. There was a flash, a heavy, ugly thud, a crashing fall. With one blow, the head had been severed from the body. A dead silence followed, broken only by the hideous noise of the blood throbbing out of the inert heap before us, which for a moment had been a brave and chivalrous man. It was horrible. Uh, he goes on. For 1868, that's remarkably spare prose, typical of the Foreign Office style, an absolutely historic piece of writing. And there's a second which I don't think we have time for me to read right out, but uh, which uh, is of equal seriousness, but exactly as Andrew says, couched in humor. It's from Sir Eric Phipps in 18, uh, 1934, he was our ambassador in Berlin. Uh, he was not an appeaser. The Foreign Office was in full appeasement mode at that time, as was much of the British government. Sir Eric was out of favour with the Foreign Office because they felt that he was not sufficiently sympathetic to Hitler's government to act as a useful conduit between the two governments. And he gave an account of a day out in the German forest organised by Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, at that time, a day out in the German forest given for the benefit of the Foreign Diplomatic Corps, in which I would read the final paragraph um, of it. Goering appeared in various garbs, uh, kept changing his clothes, kept driving off in an expensive sports car, kept stopping in the middle of the forest and with a megaphone, expatiating on the beauties of German trees, German animals, German wood spirits, German everything. And then moving on to the next place, he'd even organized a, the meeting of a bull bison with some cow bisons, which went rather disappointingly. And um, at the time, uh, th this, this was thought by those back in London to be a rather, rather facetious uh, exercise on the ambassador's part, but one that perhaps was, um, and one that was perhaps a, 
a little bit inappropriate. Uh, Stanley Baldwin commented on uh, his surprise that the, our ambassador should take, adopt such a light-hearted tone at such serious times as these. They completely misunderstood Sir Eric Phipps's intention. And here is the conclusion of his dispatch. The whole proceedings were so strange as at times to convey a feeling of unreality, but they opened, as it were, a window on the Nazi mentality, and as such were not perhaps quite useless. The chief impression was that of the almost pathetic naivete of General Goering, who showed us his toys like a big, fat, spoiled child, his primeval woods, his bison, his birds, his shooting box and lake and bathing beach, his blonde private secretary, his wife's mausoleum, and swans and sarsen stones, all mere toys to satisfy his varying moods, and all, or so nearly all, as he was careful to explain, Germanic. And then I remembered there were other toys, less innocent, though winged, and these might some day be launched on their murderous mission in the same childlike spirit and with the same childlike glee. I have the honour, etc., Eric Phipps. He was shortly after that removed uh, from his post in Berlin and sent to Paris, and a more appeasing ambassador was uh, put in his place. Over, over then to Andrew. I wanted to find another German dispatch. Obviously, Anglo-German relations are, are, uh, offer a rich vein for the dramatically inclined or, um, or uh, comedically inclined ambassador. Here's one from Julian Bullard, who was the last British ambassador to the divided Germany. Uh, the British Embassy was in Bonn when he wrote this valedictory dispatch in 1988 before it moved to Berlin. Certain constants have oper operated here throughout my time. There are the regional differences which become more evident as one learns to recognise the surnames, accents and facial characteristics which go with certain attitudes of mind. But I still think it is possible to talk of German national characteristics. And one of these is the seriousness, thoroughness, uh, humorlessness, perfectionism and pedantry which have made the German the butt of so many anecdotes. To quote a true one, the artist Philip Ernst painted the view from his window, leaving out a tree which spoiled the design. That night, he was attacked by remorse, got up from bed, and cut down the tree. <laughs> Matthew um, mentioned a few times the, the spare writing, the sparse writing of a lot of foreign office diplomats. Uh, with one exception, one very notable exception, one of the finest dispatch writers of all, certainly in sort of the golden age of dispatch writing. Yeah, so slightly looked down on in the foreign Yeah, a little so, yeah. His, um, this, his first impressions, Sir John Russell, first impressions was received in, um, in, uh, in Whitehall as magnificent but long. <laughs> and it was, it was 5,000 words. Uh, so I won't read all of it, here's just a little bit. Sir... Rio de Janeiro, 18th of May, 1967. Sir, my first impressions of Rio de Janeiro are overdue and mixed. The startling natural beauty of the city's setting is soon eclipsed for the struggling resident by the heat and the humidity. Rio is ill-designed and overcrowded. It is provincial, badly run, uncomfortable and shabby. Its architecture is of an unexampled mediocrity. Like the surface of the moon, Rio is short of water, covered in dust, and pocked with deep holes. 
Rio is in fact a far cry from the tourist paradise it has long been cracked up to be. The Paris of Latin America, indeed. No lotus land this, and its demystification is long overdue. Brazil today makes you speculate rather on what the United States would have been like if the South had won the Civil War. Which is a fair comparison, actually. More slaves were shipped from Africa to Brazil, south of the Rio Grande, than, um, than to, to the United States. Rio is a city of over four million people, a few of whom live in extravagant luxury, many in equally extravagant poverty. The clue to their apparently limitless docility lies in certain safety valves. First, the beaches. Imagine, sir, a great warm blue ocean pounding on white sand from Euston to Shepherd's Bush, and the inhabitants of Bloomsbury and Marlebone and Paddington and Notting Hill wandering happily down through the streets in their bathing suits under a blazing sun to their daily swim. Then you have something of the permanent holiday atmosphere which goes so far to make the discomforts of this city tolerable to its swarming population. The beaches are the main substitute for revolution. They also drown a lot of people daily. <laughs> and he goes on and on and talks about some of the other cities he'd, uh, he'd, he'd been to so far in the country. Sao Paulo is Milan to Rio's Rome, Dusseldorf or Manchester to Rio's Marseille. Sao Paulo is a cigarette skyline of downtown New York, superimposed overnight on Welling Garden City. <laughs> Brash, self-sufficient and self-centered, painfully plain, a vulgar city-come-lately still in its shirt sleeves. Its automobile industry produced 200,000 vehicles last year. This year, they say they're going to double it. Everything you can do, Sao Paulo can do better. Bahia, 200 of the best Baroque churches anywhere. An upper town of fine Portuguese colonial streets, wide, tree-lined, commodious. A lower town down in the harbour full of a Moby Dick romance. Negroes and sailors and brothels and bars and chapels. The bows of the ships leaning in over the market stalls. A city of prostitutes and painters and priests and writers and sea captains. Huge trees and wonderful beaches. The whole perfumed with that intoxicating blend of sweat and salt and tar and timber and drains and donkeys, frangipani and frankincense. Doesn't it make you want to go there? <laughs> Reading back through this enormous dispatch, I find that I've missed, still missed so many of the really important things. Really? Early morning on Copacabana Beach, the flamboyance and the orchids and the huge butterflies in their gaudy club colours. The vast unexplored interior of the country which has swallowed up Colonel Fawcett and Martin Borman and Che Guevara. The great Cristo lit up at night on the Corcovado 2,000 feet above us. The few old Portuguese houses still surviving like stumps of decayed teeth in the rows of concrete skyscrapers. In the Maracana Stadium, a football crowd of 200,000 packed in like some great wind-blown herbaceous border. The little constant cups of coffee, black and sweet as sin. The nightly flowers and candles set out along the beaches to the distant gods of Dahomey and the slave coast. The rich oriental smells, the blacks and the pretty girls, the football on the beaches, the leisure, the poverty, the gaiety. All this is Rio. I can just imagine the second secretary's scrawl in the margin because you would scrawl things into the margins of things in the foreign office when pass on, and the sec second secretary would have scrawled, worth reading if rather florid. Yeah. You could just, just imagine.
This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.